I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. This week on Trade Guys, we'll talk about the debate over China tariffs, and we'll talk about the reverberations the whole world is feeling over Ukraine, all on this next episode of Trade Guys. Trade Guys, we got a big thing going on here, and it's all about inflation, right? China tariffs, inflation, Ukraine, inflation. Let's talk about it. I want to ask you first, what's happening with the debate over China tariffs? Some in the administration want to drop the tariffs. Others don't. And this is all reportedly to try to address inflation. The thought is, is that if we lower our tariffs on China, consumer goods will be cheaper. What do you guys think about all this? Well, first, there's a wonderful piece out just this week by our old friend Ed Gresser. Well, I think we've had on on the program in the past who yep. talks about the explicitly tries to quantify the effect of tariffs on inflation and also what happened. And quoting other people's studies and his own analysis, he indicates an effect on inflation somewhere between 0.3% and 1.3%. The higher number is derived by taking into account not just the effect of the tariffs, but the ripple effect of domestic companies raising their prices in order to take advantage of the tariffs. So if tariffs on steel go up, that makes foreign steel more competitive. What happens then is the domestic producers raise their prices too in order to make more money. I mean, that's sort of the point. The competitiveness point, you want your company to do better. So you create a basically a shelter uh, so they can do better. If you factor in those price increases, at estimates, it's, it's closer to 1.3% inflation. Which, you know, if inflation is 7%, that's not a small chunk, but it's not the right. whole story. And I think most economists would say if you got rid of the tariffs tomorrow, it's not going to make that big a difference on inflation. First of all, because the big increases that we were just talking about before this program started are on food and fuel. And the tariffs are not on food and fuel for the most part or entirely. So why is Janet Yellen saying... Removing tariffs could help ease inflation, Scott. I think they would to some extent. I think Bill's point and what Ed Gresser's analysis shows is that it's not the whole enchilada, but it is a factor. But you have two other things to consider. One of them is the policy that got us into these tariffs in the first place. This was really done through the Section 301 process to try to correct some anti-competitive behavior on the part of China, which to the best of my knowledge has not yet been corrected. There's a reason we got into this that we haven't resolved the problem we set out to fix by imposing the tariffs. But second, the tariffs are taxes, of course, and all taxes have a distributional effect. And often tariffs hit the people you least want to tax. They often hit the people who are at the bottom end of the scale, who are buying imported goods for whatever reason. And so there are a number of arguments, all of which make the subject fairly muddy. But I think overall, the point is, if you've got 7 or 8% headline inflation, and you can reduce one percentage point of that, it may be worth the effort, because you're going to have to do a number of things, no matter what. In the meantime, Congress seems to be continually irritated at China and is looking for ways to both enhance U.S. competitiveness versus China. And uh, if they can punish China while they're doing it, they may be happy about that. Well, the third, the third thing, of course, is, is that prices on enchiladas are going way up. Yes. 
<laughs> and nobody likes that. Nope. I mean, I was telling you guys before we got on the show, we ordered a pizza for my 15-year-old the other day. Pizza and like eight wings, $45. Yeah, it's not going That's away. That's insane. Food commodities, just, just look at the commodity uh, futures market. You'll see many, many important commodities, corn, soybeans, vegetable oils, wheat, are at or near all-time highs. So it's tough. I would argue we're in the panic phase of this uh, caused by the war. And the war has had a very clear impact on grain prices in particular, because Ukraine primarily, but also Russia, are major exporters of corn and wheat, sunflower oil, among other things, not to the United States, but to other parts of the world. And these are commodity products. So the price goes up, it goes up globally. And we're experiencing that. But I think what always happens in these situations is when there's a cataclysmic event, what you get is you get panic, you get hoarding. You get countries, Hungary being the most recent example, imposing export restrictions. And then in about six months, people think, well, you know, maybe we overreacted. Things begin to stabilize a little bit more. So I think we're in the panic phase. That doesn't mean things go back to where they were, but they settle down. And I think that's probably what we'll see. Keep in mind, too, that, you know, that high prices are bad for buying pizza for your son. They're good for our farmers. Our farmers are going to have a good year this year, I think, assuming good weather. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. And they'll have a good year partly because you're going to be feeding more people in the rest of the world. And that's not a bad thing either. I have to say, going back one step, the Congress is kind of sending mixed signals on this issue because, I mean, you're right that there's a lot of China hawks and there's a debate over how tough we should be. At the same time, the Senate bill has a provision that would restore the tariff exclusions that were permitted in the Trump administration and would reestablish the process for more exclusions. So the bills kind of send mixed signals there. On the one hand, it's let's be tough. On the other hand, let's recognize really what Scott said, which is that the tariffs have not achieved their objectives in terms of changing Chinese behavior, and they've caused collateral damage. People need to look at the damage. I think what the administration has talked about, unfortunately, they've spent the last eight months talking about it without doing anything, has been, can we eliminate the collateral damage, eliminate the tariffs that don't matter, that are just hurting Americans, but keep the ones that are actually having an impact on China, particularly uh, those that attack uh, items where the Chinese are, are subsidizing or engaging in other unfair practices. That's been on the table at least since last summer. And there are some signs that the debate's kind of coming to a head right now inside the administration. But it's very clear there are different points of view about this. And some of them talk inflation. If you listen to USTR, they're not in the same place on this. Well, right. So so Catherine Tai is not for rolling back these tariffs. Right? It appears not. And she also appears not to be very excited about reinstituting a broad exclusions process. She went back and restarted the exclusions process for I think about 500 items, and they ended up approving them for, I think, 352. But the original list was like 2,500. So drop in the bucket so far. And in the end, there will be an administration position and the president will decide. But it's pretty clear that she's not excited about going back because she thinks that it will reduce our leverage in talking to China. On the other hand, she's also said publicly, we're not really talking to China right now. You know, it's not clear to me where this is going to go. Up on the Hill... There seems to be some bipartisanship, some rare acts of bipartisanship. Republicans, despite tough talk on China, are lining up behind the Senate package that was crafted by the Finance Committee leadership, Ron Wyden, 
from Oregon and Senator Mike Crapo from Idaho, this legislation would award tariff exemptions to more than 2,200 imports that were instituted under President Trump. They also have in this bill the, the directive to reopen the exemption process. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out because that provision was, which was very important for Senator Crapo, who is the senior Republican on the Finance Committee, that provision was instrumental in getting enough Republican votes to pass the bill in the first place. You know, the, the package that, you're, that you just described by itself passed the Senate 91 to 4. So it was bipartisan. And the bill, the total bill, passed with 68 to 32, I think. And so they got, you know, well over 10 Republicans to vote for it. That was in significant part because of Crapo and this provision. So I think if the House insists on getting rid of it, they do it at their peril. And it'll be hard to get Republican votes for the conference report, you know, if this is missing. The issue will be the price for keeping it in. Because if the House is smart, what they'll come back with is to say, well, we added a whole bunch of things to our bill, like tougher anti-dumping countervailing duty rules that would affect China, and the outbound investment review provision that we've talked about before, and getting rid of the de minimis tariff exclusion for China. So, yeah, we'll take your exclusion process if you'll take all of our stuff. At some point, the administration's going to have to step in with, with a clear strategy on it. Uh, of its own, you know, settling the differences between agencies and going to have to resolve this if they want to get a bill. Which they have not. And, and there's no better example of that confusion right now than yeah. the outbound investment review provision, because you've got Secretary Raimondo and Ambassador Tai publicly saying that, uh, you know, not endorsing the specific House provision, but saying they think it's a good idea and that it's better handled by legislation. Meanwhile, you've got, according to published stories, the Treasury Department going around touting its, its alternative, which would be essentially a report and a pilot program, which has already been trashed by the uh, provisions proponents. So it's clear that at the cabinet level, people are not all the same page. The rumor is the White House is taking the position of let's see what the conferees do before we decide what we're going to do, which is kind of backwards. It would be nice in this case, I think, for the administration to decide what it wants I was going to say, so the administration hasn't yet apparently decided what it wants. Well, maybe this is why the commodity markets think this is a perfect time to panic. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So you've got people on the NSC, the Deputy National Security Advisor, for removing the tariffs. You've got Catherine Tai and her shop against removing the tariffs. How does this kind of thing usually play out? Well, that's really what the national security apparatus's interagency process is all about. They're going to have it come up with a statement of administration position. And the sooner the better, in my view. But I had lunch on Monday with a senior USTR official, not Ambassador Todd, and this came up. The response was kind of interesting in the sense that basically it was a lot of sort of detailed questions about how you would do it. Because it's not so simple. You know, would it be you're going to get rid of all the tariffs? Are you going to have an exclusion process? What is the criteria for exclusion? Are you going to get rid of some of the tariffs? If so, which ones? Are you going to phase them out or are you going to get rid of them all at once? Are we going to get anything in return? Remember that Catherine's concern seems to be leverage. You know, if you give them away, I mean, negotiators never like to do anything unilaterally. They always want to get something for whatever they're going to do. And in that sense, I think Catherine's being classic USTR. Why give away tariffs without getting something? And maybe what you get is the Chinese get rid of their retaliatory tariffs. But I think her position probably is we want more than that. 
So there's all these practical questions that have to be dealt with. And the administration, I thought, was dealing with them. But, you know, six months later, they have not come to a conclusion. So it's hard to predict. Still up in the air, then? Seems to be, although the signs are from multiple places that they intend to make some statement. I think the phrase I got was weeks, not months, which we've heard before, but sometimes ends up being months. They intend to come out with something on China relatively soon. And so we'll see. There's the U.S. ASEAN summit coming up in two or three weeks here. Uh, the, they just, the White House just announced the president's going to Korea and Japan the third week in May. So there will be opportunities to focus on Asian issues. We're not saying this is easy, but, you know, the administration knew the job was tough when they took it. So it's time to get to a, an answer. Yeah, everybody's got to like put on their big pants and like figure out how to get through this, right? I mean, right. Yeah, Americans are looking at inflation and gas prices and all of this and just shaking their heads thinking, how are we going to get out of this? So someone's got to have a solution. And meanwhile, you should tell your son to lay off the pizza and go on a kale diet. <laughs> you know, Bill, I'll tell you something. The, the kid plays football and runs track and he can eat whatever he wants because he doesn't gain an ounce other than a muscle. It's crazy. We should all be so lucky. Yeah, my wife made some kale chips at home. I thought it was a brush fire. <laughs> yeah. just... you, you didn't even know what it was. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> the Indian restaurants do them, you know, and if you do it, if you cook them low and slow with a little oil, they get very, very crispy. Yes, I would highly recommend Rasika's kale chips. Bombay Club does it well as well. Those are good places. Speaking of global issues, poor Ukrainians are reeling, but the world is reeling from this war that Russia is waging on Ukraine. Guys, you know, I don't even know where to begin here, but there's a lot of discussions at the IMF, the World Bank meetings. Brussels is preparing a new tranche of sanctions, which could include oil sanctions. You know, we've discussed on recent episodes, energy sanctions like this seem a clear next step to take in order to accelerate pressure on Russia. But what are some of the risks of pursuing energy sanctions against Russia? Well, I think the largest by far for Europe, who is at least as part of NATO and the European Union are the initiators here of a sanctions program, is that they still rely on somewhere between 30 and 60% of their hydrocarbon imports come from Russia. So there is no obvious replacement for that. There's a lot of efforts to find alternative sources. You can find substitutes or alternative sources for part of that, but nowhere near all. So that's, I think, what has what has limited the response to date. We talk about smart sanctions. I don't know if that means the ones we were previously were doing were, were stupid, but <laughs> it, it's not clear to me how, how, how intelligence plays much of a factor given the scope or the scale of, of what needs to be replaced if you really want to completely suspend purchases of Russian hydrocarbons. So that part doesn't make sense. But for me, the two critical issues are, are, are energy and food. You start out, those commodity prices will translate to fewer calories being consumed. The lack of shortages of fertilizer and the high prices for fertilizer will mean crop yields are down. So these are very large problems they're not limited in scope to a single product or a single commodity or a single country. And we got the problems on our hands. We may be ending up in a, one of these contests to see who blinks first, because uh, the Russians, you know, yesterday cut off gas to Bulgaria and Poland. Natural gas. Natural gas, yeah, yeah. on the grounds that countries were refusing to pay in rubles. 
which the country's pointed out is a violation of the contract that they have with the Russians. But it's kind of an interesting case that they're scrambling to come up with alternatives. Poles who have been thinking about this apparently for 20 years and getting ready for it feel that they're actually in fairly decent shape. In the short run, they've got a They've got reserves and they've got a pipeline from Norway that's due to open latest in October and potentially earlier. I think Bulgaria is a little bit more complicated, but it's interesting because when you cut off the gas, they're not going to pay anything. So this is a revenue hit for Russia. If Putin expands it and cuts off the gas to other countries, because they're all refusing to pay in rubles with one possible exception, as far as I know, then that cuts him off. That cuts his main revenue source off. Yeah, but can he go and dollars a day? But Bill, can Putin go and sell it to India, to China? You know, just you know, they have this insatiable need for this stuff. So, is it really going to hurt Russia? Well, I think it will. First of all, we'll see what India. I mean, India has been making noises about this, but they've also been talking about buying it at a thirty-five percent discount. So, Putin's not going to be held harmless, even if he can sell it. Plus, how you get it from Russia to India is a complicated question. I don't think there's a pipeline, which means you're back onto ocean freight, which creates its own set of problems. China's easier because there are pipelines. I'm not sure how much more the Chinese want to buy than they're already buying. And you got to separate natural gas from crude oil. Crude oil is actually easier to transport. There are existing super tankers and there are ways. It's also a much more fungible commodity. If the tankers will will be willing to go to Russian ports, load up, and then sail around to Mumbai or wherever the other the terminal is to unload. Yes, it, and it's not a straightforward. Natural gas is, has many more challenges because it's it's more difficult to move if there's not an existing pipeline. Uh, but uh, I would note that uh, that uh, China dropped tariffs on imports of coal today, so uh, everybody's thinking about their energy sources in uh, in new ways as a result of the conflict. Are we? Are we what? Are we thinking about energy sources in new ways because of this conflict? Well, we're trying to. Senator Manchin keeps getting in the way. The whole Build Back Better thing had substantial language in it about funding alternative sources of energy, renewables primarily, and they've been unable to come up so far with a formulation that Senator Manchin is willing to support. He comes from a fossil fuel state. He's tended to be a favor of, you know, not one size fits all. What's the, what's the metaphor? All of the above approach. So we need to promote fossil fuels. We need to promote renewables. We need to promote all this stuff. And, you know, the whole what's happening has produced this very interesting debate that I'm, I'm just not sure where it's going to play out. If you talk to the, the, the oil people, they say, you know, what the war proves is the, the essential nature of fossil fuels. In the short run, we can't do without it. So we need to drill more. We need to produce more. And prices are still over $100 a barrel, so we make lots of money. There's a lot of talk about the Keystone Pipeline again. Well, indeed. But the environmentalists say exactly the opposite. Say what the war demonstrates is we need to get out of fossil fuels faster because we need to remove our vulnerability. Well, maybe everybody's right in this case. Can't both of them be right? I I think so. And if I were going to fault the administration for one thing, it's that they have remained relatively hostile to the industry both the natural gas and crude oil industry, where it was probably a good time, given the changed circumstances in the world, it's a good time to sit down and understand what the industry actually needs to increase production. And yes, if you want to get to net zero, those are admirable goals. If you have an energy transition in mind, but that timetable has to be dictated by reality and real events that are going on. 
And so that making commitments, particularly natural gas exports to Europe, that the industry rightly says, hey, nobody talked to us about whether this was feasible and what would, what it would require. So I think there's an opportunity here that's been missed. If anything else, we, we all know that it's a different world, but the industry experts are industry experts for a reason. And they can help you understand what the scope and size of the investment budget is, what kind of commitments are necessary to deliver what is really a plentiful supply of hydrocarbons that, that we're not using here at home to the extent that we could. So um, I think there's work to do. Bill, any last words on that? No, I think Scott's right. One of the, the problems you get into with this stuff is there aren't always short-term fixes. You know, right. there are some existing, uh, looking at oil wells that are where production can be increased or old ones that can be reopened. And there were, I think, three of the, I don't want to say smaller because none of them are really small, but three of the companies, not Exxon, not Chevron, but three of the other companies that earlier this week announced they were going to ramp up production, which is probably a good sign. They had been hesitant to do this in the past because there's kind of a boom and bust cycle in fossil fuels that prices go up and the industry ramps up production, which is exactly what's supposed to happen in the market. So production goes up, supply goes up, prices fall, and then the companies discover that they've ramped up production and now the prices are low and they're not making any money. And so it's this, this up and down, up and down, up and down thing. And they've been through a couple of those recently. And until this week, the oil companies were thinking, we don't want to go through that again. And it, it's nice the prices hit the $126 a barrel, whatever the peak was. But, you know, they're not going to stay there. And let's be rational about what we do. So you did not see in February and March the ramp up of production that I think some people would have liked to see. You're beginning to see it now, I think, which is probably a good thing for the time being. It's not enough. And it's, it's not the kind of thing where you can just push a button and all of a sudden you've got 25% more oil. And as Scott said, gas is harder because it moves either by pipeline, so you have to build the pipeline, or you have to liquefy it and, and move it by you know, LNG vessels. And that means you've got to have the proper relatively high technology equipment at both ends, which means it's got to be built. I mean, it's, it's not hard to build. It requires major investment. Well, let me ask you this, Scott. Hasn't the administration, President Biden, signaled that they're willing to adjust their strategies to get to net zero because of what's happening in Ukraine, because of high gas prices? Haven't they already signaled that and actually done a few things? They've done a few things, but it's not clear and it's, it's not consistent. I think this is the industry's request is let's map this out because the investment frontier is such that it's the, the size and scale of the investment requires regulatory consistency and clarity into the future. Nobody's going to make the investment. I think that the signals have not been clear enough to get the result the administration, I think, would like at this point. Yeah, but I, I have to interject and defend the administration a little bit. I think they've had a plan. They proposed it. They can't get it through Congress. Well, yeah. That's, let's not put all the blame. That's another fair, matter. Fair, fair point. Yeah, that they, it's not, there's a reason it's not U.S. policy yet, which is Congress has failed to act. Okay, well, we'll have to watch out for that. Um, finally, and we've just got a couple minutes left. I, Bill, you mentioned de minimis uh, in our earlier discussion. I want to ask you, what's going on with de minimis? What does it mean? What do we need to look out for? Well, there's long been in U.S. law a uh, provision that basically says if you're shipping in small packages, originally below $50 and then uh, later on below $200 in value, you don't have to go through normal customs procedures. You don't have to pay a duty, number one, and you don't have to fill out all the paperwork, number two. 
And the idea was tourists sending stuff back home that they bought or relatives sending gifts for Christmas. It was small potatoes. And why bother the custom service with stuff that fundamentally didn't make much economic difference? Have you seen some of the stuff people bring on planes these days? <laughs> well, I mean, this is changing. And it's changing for a couple of reasons. One is because of the explosion of, of sort of online purchasing, which COVID accelerated. People stopped going to stores, partly because the stores were closed, and they started buying online. And a lot of that means they were getting packages shipped directly from foreign manufacturers. And at the same time, in 2015, pre-COVID, Congress raised the, the minimum level to $800, which is you know, the Amazons of the world and the people that do engage in the logistics companies that engage in direct delivery were very much for this because they thought it would facilitate their business. And it did. There's been an explosion in those kinds of things coming in. And it's caused some manufacturers to change their business models in the fast fashion industry. And in, in particular, one of the biggest companies, Chien, has uh, developed a business model where they ship directly to individual buyers. You know, they make small lots. They make like as many as 10,000 new products every day, different, you know, colors and, you know, ornaments and things like that. But they've gotten now into the business of small shipments going to individual buyers rather than large shipments going to retail stores. And that means there's been an explosion in these shipments and apparel duties are fairly high. So if you can come in zero duty because you're below de minimis, you become a very, very competitive manufacturer. And so there's an effort now in Congress led by the Congressman Blumenauer, the chairman of the House Trade Subcommittee, to remove de minimis really for China. I think the way he's drafted it, it would also include Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan, but they're not big sources, really to remove it from China. And this has become very, very controversial because the logistics companies are not excited about it. The importers are not excited about it. And the people that compete with the importers think it's a great idea. It's not in the Senate bill. It's not been the subject of any Senate consideration or any Senate hearings. It's kind of came up at the last minute. And I'm not sure that the House may have had one hearing on it, but it's not been extensively dealt with. There are other ways to solve the problem. The biggest problem that Blumenauer has is that if you're going to treat certain countries differently, you've got a WTO problem immediately. You can't discriminate on something like this against one or two countries and not everybody. So, you know, if you're worried about de minimis, the right answer is probably go back to a lower number, not 800, some lower number for everybody, and then you won't have a WTO problem. But he's chosen a different road. So it'll be controversial, a lot of lobbying going on. If I were going to bet on it, I would bet that it gets thrown over the side this time, but it, Blumenauer will bring it back. And I think it will end up ultimately happening in some form. The Customs Service, CBP, I think has not as far as I know, said anything publicly, but they have in the past been public about their concern at $800. They think a lot of opioids, fentanyl, and things like that come in in small packages and that this is uh, being facilitated by an $800 limit. Well, look, I, I think that there's a lot of outrage here, certainly, but I think some of the outrage is misplaced. Let me point out that fast fashion was not created by de minimis. Fast fashion, not that I know much about fashion. For me, 
when I make a fashion statement, I put on my wingtips. So, <laughs> Looking <laughs> but, at you, Scott, I can see you're not a fast fashion man. Yes, that's pretty obvious. I but, think he's pretty darn stylish, but I, you know I, that's just me. I do what I can. That's a I'm hey, always I'm grateful with the shirt and tie today. I just want to note that for the record. You sure are. I am. I'm grateful. This is an audio only podcast. Yeah, but but <laughs> <laughs> having said that, look, fast fashion pre-existed and the purveyors have just found a simpler way to get the goods to consumers that the consumers want here by using the de minimis provision. Fast fashion really comes from the expiry of the multi-fiber arrangement, which had quotas on apparel, and the information technology boom. So it'll exist with or without this. I think that the people who were most responsible for the raising of de minimis from 200 to 800 are still sitting senators on the finance committee. As I recall, that bill's the co-sponsors were Senator Brown of Ohio and Senator Portman of Ohio. And they're still there. So we could actually ask them what they think, how it's going. Certainly it was done for risk management by the customs service. That was the key selling point. And if customs has a different view now after having it been implemented for five years, that would be an important fact that hasn't come out. As uh, I so, recall, there are several mail delivery hubs in Cincinnati. Right, Scott? That may be, but it's one of those things that there is controversy that is not resolved yet. And I just don't think Mr. Blumenauer is making claims that can be supported. And let's get the facts. As I think we've said before, there's a lot of outrage, but let's find out what's really happening. If it needs to be changed, we ought to change it, but not till then. Wouldn't it be great if we could get uh, Senator Portman and Senator Brown on the podcast and we could have an all-Ohio podcast? I mean, Bill's Pennsylvania, but me and Scott have Ohio. I mean, it would be really exciting. That would be cool. At some point, elephants could fly, too, you know? You never know. <laughs> I don't know. For, for me, Ohio is a flyover state. But Oh, don't say that to the Cleveland Browns. Hate to see you go there, Bill, but that's... that's Pennsylvania and Illinois are the places to watch. <laughs> oh, Indiana, my goodness. Ohio are just in the middle, in the, in the way. Well, having just driven through Pennsylvania on my way to Ohio, Pennsylvania is quite something these days. I was born in Philadelphia, so I can say really, that. Really? Well, yeah. they're both the scene of very dramatic senatorial races right now, and very tough primaries. Yeah. Pennsylvania on both parties... Ohio on the Republican side. I was talking to someone last night who follows it very closely. Uh, used to work for one of the Ohio senators, and he thought it was not clear who was going to win. I, I think that's right. I don't think it is clear. I mean, and when you spend five minutes in the state of Ohio and turn on the television, you would not believe the barrage of ads on the Republican side fighting for this primary. Yeah, the Democratic Ohio primary, I think, is is simpler. It looks like Tim Ryan. It's Tim Ryan, yeah. And he's a candidate very much in the Sherrod Brown mold. And I was asking my colleague last night, you know, regardless who wins the Republican primary, what about the general? And he thought it would end up, I mean, Ohio is rapidly becoming a redder state, but Ryan could be a good, a strong candidate. Well, there's a bunch of polls that show Ryan ahead of whoever the Republican would be. And you know, Ryan is a man of the people from Youngstown. And as I believe Scott pointed out on our last podcast, Ryan used to be chief of staff to one representative, Jim Traficant. Beam me up. Yes, that's uh, so he's he's got the populist uh, angle deep in his career. But look, I, I think Mr. Ryan's a good person and a good candidate in this particular race. Yeah, he is. But I, I, th- I think the polls will settle once there is a Republican candidate. We'll see how competitive the general is. But important races in both Pennsylvania and Ohio, as Bill points out. There's another important thing I need to point out before we sign off today, guys. Today, Thursday, 
is a national holiday. It is the NFL draft tonight. Yes. So I'll be getting off this call off of our our podcast and I'll be in deep preparations for the Ravens draft for the rest of the day. Time well spent, I'm sure. (laughs) Are you drafting anybody yourself? You know, I'd like to think I have that power, but, you know, there's many men across the country right now who actually are in their own fantasy draft room with their big board and their visors and their clipboards and their multiple hard phone lines. It's a fun time of year for NFL fans, Bill. That's all I can say. Read the New York Times today, which will show you that this whole exercise is a lesson in humiliation and years and years and years of people making major draft choices that turned out to be major mistakes. The Ravens are not one of those. The Ravens, the Ravens, the Patriots, the Chiefs, and actually the Seattle Seahawks draft the best out of anybody over the last 20 years. You know, and it may be hopeless, Bill, but it'll be the best rated sports programming of the next 48 hours. (laughs) Guaranteed. (laughs) All right, guys. Well, we will uh, see you next week. We'll know who the Ravens and the Browns have drafted. We will see you next time, next week, same trade time, say trade channel. Thanks. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the trade guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.